What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, animal abuse, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Evan and Melissa Marshall shared about the heartbreaking loss of Evan's father, Richard, in part one of their story. The Broken Cycle Media team is extremely grateful they were willing to share more of their journey, healing, and the trauma that they continue to sift through in the wake of Richard's absence. The holidays were hard. My niece and nephew's birthdays have been extra hard. My sisters and I, none of us live around each other. So we haven't had a lot of time to be together as a family and process all of this. Because when my dad died, it was the height of COVID. I mean, people were still doing just immediate family at funerals and stuff, and they weren't allowing group gatherings. My dad had impacted so many people in this area in the 40 years that he'd been here that there was going to be a lot of people that wanted to come pay their respects to him. I didn't want to have a service for him and not make that available for everyone. Part of the problem is my disability. If I was physically capable of going to the site where he wants his ashes spread, then I would. The thing is, is I lost my mobility during the grieving process. When my dad was here, the last time I saw him, I was walking with just a really light walker and I was still moving around the house. I was still able to get in the shower and use the bathroom and help cook dinner. I could still even get in my truck and drive. But the five months after my dad died, I gained so much weight that I gave myself congestive heart failure. I ended up in the ICU for four days. I could not believe that that was true, but the proof was there. I was laying in the hospital dying. Starting from that point when I went to the hospital, I'd gone back twice. One of the things that happened because of the pandemic was I stopped being able to get the medical attention that I needed because physical therapy offices and one of my specialists closed down shop. I developed severe, severe edema in my legs. My legs swelled up to like the size of basketballs behind my knees. They call them lobes. That is part of the congestive heart failure. My body stopped processing the fluids correctly. I started retaining all this water. Therefore, the congestive part of the congestive heart failure, my lungs get congested with fluid and then my heart doesn't get enough oxygen. That was a huge wake-up call. I never, ever thought that I would ever be in that position. They put me on a diuretic in the hospital, and I lost 120-something pounds of fluid over six days. Since then, I've been doing my best to get that under control. The bed rest and keeping my legs elevated is the main thing to keep the fluid from building up in my lower extremities. That's the main reason why I'm in bed. Being stuck in bed, my muscles have atrophied. I've lost strength and have to teach myself to walk again. 
currently having a hard time wrapping my mind around what trauma does to people, how much it can trap them, how much depression and anxiety can be a fucking cage that doesn't allow you to move on, doesn't allow you to do anything sometimes. There are things, my physical disability are definitely standing in the way of the closure I think I could find if I could do some of these physical things that need to be done. What sucks is I feel like I failed them because I can't do these things. It's really, really hard for me to not feel guilty about the fact that my sisters have not been able to have the closure that they want and need because I can't be there to do it. But we've also agreed as a family that if we're not all going to be there, then we're going to have to wait. It is very disheartening. I didn't realize what was coming for us still, how sick Evan would get, how many times he would end up in the hospital, in the ICU because of his health. There was one moment in the hospital where congestive heart failure can cause hallucinations when your body is basically overrun by CO2. I remember sitting in the ER with him and he didn't know who I was. I looked into his eyes and he was completely gone. He kept trying to rip off his mask that they had on. That was the first time that I felt truly alone in this, alone with all my grief. That was when I felt the scaredest, when he was gone too. Evan has a lot of anxiety. He had a lot of anxiety before this happened. It was hard in the hospital because they wouldn't let me stay. So there were nights where we just texted all night. I felt like he was going to come home and die if he wasn't in the hospital, but he just did not want to be there because he was so scared and upset to be alone. But he ended up making it through. I thought I was going to lose him when he was in the ICU for sure. They talked about intubating him. I was just like, how much worse is this going to get? I couldn't wrap my mind around it. I am still absolutely in the throes of all of this. I had just made a post on Facebook that said, I am so ready to take on the rest of my life. I'm ready to get healthy. I was all fired up. A whole bunch of people were like, yeah, Evan, you can do this. We love you, buddy. You can do this. And then two weeks later, the wind's knocked out of my sails again. Within a few hours of it dropping, there was Facebook comments and people calling us saying, hey, did you know that there's a podcast about your dad's murder? Here I am on Front Street with all the trauma and the PTSD bubbling up right in my face again. Small town dicks. There was absolutely no communication. I had no idea about the podcast. I'd never heard of it before. I decided, well, I need to listen to the podcast. As much as I don't want to rehash it, somebody in the family had to hear it. I'm the older brother. I decided, fuck it. I'll take the lumps. I'll go listen to it. That way I can tell my sisters what it's about if they don't want to listen to it. I turn it on and the very first voice I hear is Lisa Simpson. I've had that surreal feeling happen when he was murdered. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It completely put me back in that very strange feeling of surrealness. It was so jarring. The podcast was a two-parter. It was really long. I would say that out of close to two hours of podcast, that maybe 15 minutes, if that, I mean, probably less than that, was talking about my dad. They didn't talk about any of the stuff I would have talked about. They called him Larry, which to anybody out there named Lawrence or Larry, no disrespect, but my dad wasn't a Larry. I just didn't like the fact that they chose his name and didn't ask us. Like I would have picked something different. That day that I heard the podcast, I reached out to them on Facebook. My message to them was something along the lines of, hey, how come Lisa Simpson is on the podcast talking about my dad's murder and we were never consulted? 
Detective Dan wrote me back and basically gave me the spiel that they give at the beginning of the podcast. We don't mean to do this. We don't mean to re-traumatize. We changed information to try to hide the identity of the victim. The fact of the matter is, is anybody that knew the real story was able to parse it together very easily because there have not been very many murders at youth farms and they didn't change the location. They said several times that it was a community farm. So, of course, anybody that knows me or knows the story automatically knew that they're talking about my dad. Everybody knows that these guys are active and ex-Springfield detectives. Matt Groening went to the University of Oregon. He's from Portland. There's just no degrees of separation. So the idea of changing names and stuff to protect people is disingenuous, in my opinion, because it's already been disclosed where some of these stories are coming from. They ran that podcast story less than two years after the actual murder. That's just not enough time, man. I mean, come on. People give a wider berth to bad jokes. This was just fucking too soon. The other thing I have to mention is the guest on the podcast was Detective Justin Myers, the detective that was in charge of my dad's homicide investigation. He went in and was interviewed for the podcast. I have a huge issue with that. I want to know if any information that they put out was not on public record. I don't believe that if you read the police report that you will get the details vocalized on the podcast of the grisliest parts of my dad's murder. He changed the story to punch it up and make it more impactful. For example, he says that that first night they were treating it as a suicide. Nobody ever mentioned that fucking word to me one time. So if they were treating it as a suicide, they never told me that. I don't know why they would because there was absolutely no evidence of that. There was no gun there. The bullet casing they found was 20 to 25 feet away from the body. The other thing said on the podcast was that he was sitting propped up against the tree and that's just completely not true. Melissa was right next to him. She touched him. She said there wasn't blood everywhere. She said that he was laying in a position that was different from what the police said. The people on the podcast go into great detail about bone fragments and where the bullet was, where he was shot and how much blood there was. Those little things may not seem like a big deal, but they are to me because the truth is the truth. And it just seemed like they got into the grisly details. They talked about it possibly being a suicide just to punch the story up and give it more impact. That killed me. That really killed me. I didn't want the public, my family, or anybody else to know the grisly details of my father's murder. So not only were there inaccuracies, not only did they not approach the family at all, They put their podcast out way too close to the time of his death. I was angry at the time. He said that the podcast is from the perspective of the detectives, that the point of their podcast is to tell the detective side of the stories, not the victims. So I said something along the lines of like, well, then you're just in it for the money then. And they're like, no, no, no. And I was like, well, then explain to me why you guys would do this and not ask the families By not involving the families, they just get to sweep all of those concerns under the rug. Then the connection between the podcast and the police department to me is very, very bothersome. The fact that these folks are taking stories from the community that they're based out of. I feel like there's not just a conflict of interest there. They're basically using the trauma and the stories of victims from the area as like a pool to fish in. A pool to grab entertainment out of to make money. Between the police department and the podcast, it should have been easy enough to reach out and say, hey, we're doing this. He had my number. I feel like the onus was on him and the podcast to be forthright about that stuff. That would have been better than getting blindsided by it.
the thing is, I even told them in one of the messages I wrote, I said, hey, if you guys would have talked to us, we might even said yes if we felt like it was going to be honoring him. They didn't even give us a chance to say yes or no. And after that, I made a complaint against the officer at the department. Their policy says that they will wrap these things up within 30 days. I have not had any communication with the police department for several weeks. When I called today, they told me that the officer that is in charge of this hasn't been in for like four weeks because he's having health issues. So the person that's supposed to be dealing with it hasn't even been there. I asked to speak to his supervisor. Well, I said, well, we're beyond the 30 days of your policy to take care of this. And he says, the chief can extend that anytime he wants, is what he told me. Nobody's asked me questions to investigate. I've dealt with no investigators. So I feel like they're just trying to sweep it under the rug. I just don't think people realize how violating that stuff is. They changed the story in such a way that even I'm confused now of what really happened. And now I'm even questioning sometimes what I see in my head because when I wake up every morning, I see Richard's body. I think about him a lot. And throughout the day, I picture how I found him and that hasn't stopped. And I don't know if that ever will stop. I just don't appreciate them changing really important things. It's unethical in a lot of ways. They changed the details of his murder to make it more bloody and more gruesome and more graphic. It's changing it for likes and for attention. It was really awful. I listened to it a little bit before I even told him so I could warn him. I had to go through that alone. Now I don't even know what things are true and what things aren't true in the forensics part of it. And it doesn't really matter because he's gone and nothing's going to bring him back. But it's just not right. When the podcast came out, I was really struggling. I was completely re-traumatized. It felt like it was happening all over again. It was really, really jarring. I had spoken to my therapist and she said that she thought that I need to expand upon that and write about it. I said, well, where do I write about it? She said, just write an email to yourself. It doesn't matter. Or there's anonymous forums you can post in. So I was like, I'm going to check out Reddit. I was warned to be careful on Reddit because Reddit is such a shit show sometimes. But as I started searching through subthreads, I found that there was several of them about true crime podcasts. I made a post in the sub. It was about what happened and how I felt. Within three days, it had almost 60,000 views and a lot of sympathetic comments. I couldn't believe there was hardly any negative comments at all. The most negative of the comments were things like, what else did you expect in this capitalist society? Or I think the worst one was like, that's life, bro, get over it. But for the most part, people didn't understand or had no idea how this all went down. The number one thing that everyone was touching on was the fact that I said that we were never consulted. This podcast was recorded, produced, and put out without our knowledge, let alone our input. Fuck that, let alone our permission. The number one comment was, wow, we had no idea that they didn't talk to the victims. The fact that I was able to reach some people motivated me to keep going with this. It drives me nuts that people don't know the truth or the process. You hit on so many things that I find vital. What would you change about how the media tells our stories? It's such a big, convoluted thing we're talking about here, right? The public has the right to know certain stuff. News is news. I understand that. But it's different now since the age of the internet. Now people are out for clicks. 
They used to be out to see how many papers they could sell. If they had some splashy cover, they'd sell more papers. All you have to do is sensationalize some shit. My trust in the media is gone. Not to say that I had a vision of the media that with blinders on, but at least I thought that for the most part, they were trying to do the right thing. What I found out was some people do, but most don't. That's how I feel that they did us is they turned it into a spectacle. Then it's also like, how is it represented in entertainment? I think the media would serve everyone much better if they just stated facts, not opinions on things like this. Also, the news media wants to be the first ones to drop the story. They want the exclusive. So then there's always a rush. I would like to see everybody just slow down a little bit, make it accurate and safe and ethical for sure. All that is lost in the rush to get the story out and be the first ones to do it. I don't care that the rules and the laws say that once it's in the public sphere, that it's public knowledge. Where are your ethics? Where are your morals? I feel like families should be consulted. And if it's not granted, then it's not granted. There's so much pain in the world. Go find something that someone wants to talk about because you're powerless that your loved one was taken from you. And then you're powerless with how the media just devours people's pain. I don't want to live in that world where people don't care about other people's pain because the world just wants to destroy us and eat us up. Staying soft and kind and empathetic is what's the word I'm trying to think of. My co-producer, Tiffany, her podcast is called Something Was Wrong. There was an episode that the title hit me really hard. It was called Being Soft is Hard as Fuck. And I think that it's so true because number one, it is hard. It's hard to be soft and hard to be sensitive. And you're a boss ass person who can be soft. That's a strength. Softness. I actually have Stay Soft tattooed on my knuckles. I feel like we have this mission to make people think about how they consume true crime as a genre. Because there's real people that are still healing and still trying to get through this. You look at our society, more and more people are in that category of people that are healing from violence and like traumatic experiences. We just need to think about that. That's what we want to come out of this. That's why we were so grateful to be able to talk to you and know that we're on the same page as far as that goes. We just want some more accountability. People don't know what this feels like until it happens to you. After finding Richard and going through what I've gone through, I think something is calling to me to try to help people because I was so sideswiped by this grief and I think I could help people get through it. I've looked into going to school to be a death doula because I feel like I need to put this somewhere. I need to like channel this darkness and I do want to help people. It has screamed to me even before this happened when I was In my 20s, I worked at a hospital and they had a program that was amazing called No One Dies Alone, where you volunteer and you hold people's hands when they're going through the dying process. You like go sit by their bed and talk to them, take a cloth to their face and just make sure they're loved as they go through the end of life. I thought that was the most amazing program and I volunteered for that for a while. I've never really been scared of that darkness and that death is natural. Like we're all moving towards that in some way or another. It's just some people are taken too soon. Some people are stolen from us and other people get to have a nice death with their loved ones. I think that's maybe part of why people get so obsessed with true crime because they're trying to understand 
but there's a way to do it that's ethical and doesn't continually violate people. To be straight up honest, this stuff has still got me by the balls and every day it affects me somehow. Melissa, even though she is also a victim in this, she really, really stepped up. She really took care of me at my worst. I love her so much and even more now that this has happened. I don't like silver linings. I don't think they exist very often. But the silver lining was as we came closer together because of this. And it wasn't our choice. But what are we going to do? We have to do it. I feel like sometimes I'm not strong enough and that I'm not doing enough. Melissa's always really good at reminding me that I am strong. And that the reason she can tell I'm strong and she knows I'm strong is because I still find those moments of happiness in life. It's really strange because once something like this happens, anytime that I smile or have fun or do something fulfilling for myself, I feel guilty. When I said I don't like silver linings, it's not that I don't like them. It's just for most of my life, I didn't believe in them. What's strange is I was more of a negative person before my dad died. But I think that's because I've been going to therapy. I was always a guy that didn't have a problem expressing my emotions to my partners, but I wasn't going public with it. I wasn't talking to my buddies about it. Growing up in the 80s and the 90s, there was this whole culture of build a little bridge and get over it. Life's hard. Grab your bootstraps and deal with it. That's how I'd live most of my life. Therapy has helped me realize that not only is that not the right way, it's detrimental to my mental health. Because stuffing it down inside until you blow up, that was me. I had denied myself therapy my entire life. I was kind of anti-therapy. I didn't really understand how it worked. I'm a private person and I didn't feel comfortable really talking about my most personal shit with some person I didn't know. But the Lane County Victim Services offer a program to, first of all, help pay for the burial or cremation of the loved one. They also provide therapy services. So I decided to take advantage of that. My therapist that I was assigned is a godsend. She just happens to be the perfect person for me. I got really lucky. She's helped me a lot, more than I ever would have imagined. Talking about it and writing about it have also helped me a lot, especially because I'm stuck in bed. Things that I would have done in the past to help with this grief, I can't do. Like, I would love to have already gone camping at one of his favorite spots. That would have probably helped me a lot. Or we haven't had a chance to lay him to rest yet. I think that's been the hardest. As soon as we can do that, I think that will help everybody move on a little bit. Actually, you know, move on is not the right term. It'll help everybody. For me, it's not closure. This isn't over for me. Even when he's buried or his ashes are spread, this isn't over for me. It's moving on, I mean, to like the next step of however this is all going to shake out. We're just so lucky to have each other in a lot of ways. But one of them is that the way we're healing is through therapy, number one, and communication with each other. And also being creative, getting into the zone. I think any artist knows what I'm talking about. Like you start to do something that you're really invested in and everything falls away. Your pain and your body falls away. Like all the bullshit of our society falls away and you're just in that zone. And that's, I think, how we're able to still be strong and survive right now. He is a musician. He also is a graphic designer. I was a photographer. I went to school for it. I paint we're able to channel our pain into those things. The fact that he can take his mind wherever he wants to go is just really healing for him and something that people should take more time to explore themselves when they're going through something like this, this grief that you've never experienced before and how to channel it to heal yourself. I've had three different therapists since this happened. I haven't connected with people as well as Evan has connected with his therapist. So it hasn't been as helpful for me. 
but I'm still searching for that right person. And I'm not afraid to keep searching for that person that I can get into the weeds with because I think that's important. But also we have three dogs and I have a 14-year-old son. I have a lot of plants. So I feel like I'm doing a good job if I'm keeping all those things alive. I'm just trying to stay mindful and actually feel my feelings. But it's hard when there's a lot of people and dogs and plants that like have needs. I don't exactly know what I'm doing. I just know that I feel like for the first time in my life, I have something to say that I think other people need to hear. I feel like if I don't take what has happened and try to help other people deal with these situations, that I'll be remiss as a human being. Like it is my duty as a person that cares about other people to try to get out in front of this so other people don't have to deal with it. I've always been the type of person, just like my dad, that wants to help people. But now I feel like I have a laser focus on something to help with now. I feel like this, this is really important. If anything that I say or do can help anybody that's the victim of a crime, especially murder, help them navigate the super rough seas that it is to grieve and try to rationalize what happened. The number one piece of advice I would give to someone going through this is to realize it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be vulnerable with people and cry with people, especially if they care about you. Be honest about how you're feeling and not shove it down, which is something I need to work on. Talking about your pain is okay and talking about what you've gone through is okay. It doesn't define everything about you. As long as you're making steps, taking each day as it comes and trying to make the best choices you can. I mean, at this point, we're just taking it by day. My advice to anybody going through the grieving process, I'm sure there's similarities within all of us in our grieving process, but everybody does it their own way. So no matter how you're grieving, as long as you're know, not hurting yourself or hurting other people, do what you got to do. Take it your own pace. Take it as small increments as possible, but keep moving forward. I have rough days, I have rough weeks, I have rough months. But if I work hard enough, try hard enough, and I am mindful of my emotions and my behavior, my actions, I come out of it. The one thing that I've noticed since I've started therapy is I now have better tools to negotiate when I'm feeling like that. So to find that happy medium is where I wanna be. And when I dip down to those dark periods and I'm in my lowest of the lows, the duration of that period is shorter and shorter every time it happens. I know that I'm not going to be able ever to stave off that depression and anxiety altogether, but I am definitely happy to finally feel like I'm able to at least have some wiggle room that I can still move forward and it doesn't completely hold me down or hold me back. Food for Lane County, they're the nonprofit that runs the farm he was living on. They have a sign down at the end of the road at the farm my dad had built a little lending library and hung it up there. He put DVDs, books, and Hot Wheels in there for the neighborhood kids. It was a hit. Every day, kids were coming to the box and trading stuff. So I talked to Food Lane County, and I said that I wanted to put a memorial right there for him. What we're going to do is build a permanent lending library that has a bench seat, so you can sit on the seat and read books or whatever, planters on the both ends, a place for people to leave flowers. We're gonna put some rhododendrons in there because they're his favorite. We're gonna maintain it. We're gonna start a trust to make sure that it always has money to be maintained. And if it's up to me, it will be there for fucking ever. The final thing I wanna to touch on, my friend that was with me 
she got to keep Richard's dog, Ray. She's a border collie. She's really beautiful. She latched on to Casey immediately because Casey was the only person that seemed like they had any kind of control. It's amazing that Casey's my best friend and we get to see Ray all the time. Ray comes over and plays with our dogs. They're all best friends. I just figured people would wonder. She's happy, she's healthy, and she gets all the treats she wants. If you want to give an avenue for people to contact you, what would that be? We do have a GoFundMe for his memorial to help us build the lending library and maintain it. Anything that was left over out of that direct amount, we were going to donate to a Border Collie Rescue. They can send us messages through there. Even just any kind words of support would be amazing. And if anybody has any questions and wants to talk to us, we're available on Facebook. E-V-I-N is my first name. I may or may not answer everything. Melissa may or may not respond to everything. But we are open to talking to folks and making connections because this experience of being able to talk about it, especially talking to someone who has their own experiences that are similar to ours, has been really cathartic. I feel so deeply for both of you, and I just want you to know that. I'm so sorry for all that you've gone through. Thank you again so much. It really does touch my heart. I don't know any other better words to explain how I feel, the fact that you would talk to me. I'm really grateful we got to talk to you and remember that we're all just going through this life together. Thank you. This episode is dedicated in loving memory of Richard Donald Marshall. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. Our homestead was built on a stake of land, almost 15 miles east of Homer. My family built it with their bare hands. We were so healthy, and I think that's part of the reason I had to step up on so many other people. By the time I got to high school my freshman year, I was a starting goalie at our high school, which was a good program. All of a sudden, I started getting letters in the mail. People are asking me to come try out for their team, This was really the beginning and the end of hockey for me. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.